This is the Sibling Library Podcast. You will know when to start listening when you hear the chimes ring like this. Let's begin now. Welcome to Sibling Library. My name is Julia and Katie and Megan will be along shortly. I just wanted to provide a little introduction for this month's episode. This month we read Spinning Straw into Gold by Jane Gould and we invited two of our dearest friends and best listeners onto the podcast, Courtney and Caitlin, who will introduce themselves later on. But for this month, we hope that you enjoy our oversized episode of Good Conversation between five women in celebration of Women's History Month. So on with the show. All right. Welcome, everybody. We have a couple of really exciting guests with us today. Uh, we're going to talk about who the, who they are and then what we're going to be talking about. I, I would like to introduce and welcome my my friend, Courtney, and she is my friend from work, but she has become even closer of a friend through books and through hilarity, I have to say, um, enthusiasm <laughs> and passion. So I want to I welcome her to the show. She's been mentioned many times on the show, and she's uh, she's curated a lot of my reading in, in the recent last few years. So I want to thank her for that and welcome you to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. All right. And Megan, would you like to introduce your guest? Yes, we have Caitlin, who I have also mentioned on the show. Uh, we also had her son, Evan, on the show in December. That was December, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Caitlin is one of my very best friends since freshman year of high school. I don't know when we figured this out, but at some point, I think the first time we started talking about books for pleasure, I noticed she had the Unicorn Chronicles in her closet. Um, and we started talking about the Unicorn Chronicles, and I knew from then on she was a kindred book reader spirit. So <laughs> thank you, you for being here, Caitlin. Before yeah, before be um, before we uh, go too far away from introducing Caitlin, Megan, can you tell the story of when you first broached her at school? <laughs> my favorite story. <laughs> I've told this many times. I would love to hear Caitlin tell it, but that's okay. I can tell it one more time, and then we can get Caitlin's take. Yes, my perspective. Yeah. <laughs> happened <laughs> um so caitlin's maiden name was radozovich uh which had which which rhymes with something um we won't go into that but that was one of her nicknames um <laughs> but before we got like super close we were just um uh acquaintances kind of at this point and i noticed she was in my math class and we used to eat lunch together after math class but we didn't walk together from math class to where we ate lunch together. We just kind of walked five feet apart from each other. But anyway, that's we were just social distancing point. before it was a thing. <laughs> we, were, we were social awkwarding from a very young age together. Oh, that should be a thing. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, this was back in the, before students had laptops. So, you know, pen and paper, pencil and paper in math class. And uh, I ran out of paper and she was the only person in my math class that I knew who she was. Anyway, we weren't friends again at this point. Not close anyway. And But she sat on the opposite end of the room from me. So I like snuck behind her and like tapped her on the shoulder. And she like twitched and looked at me. And she, and she was like, what? And I was like, can I borrow a piece of paper? 
And with this look of disdain, she reached into her backpack, pulled out <laughs> one sheet of paper, and like flung it at me. And I was like, thank you, bye. I went back to my seat. <laughs> okay, but you said it perfectly. You were creeping up to me and tapped me on the shoulder. I was not expecting you, so you scared me. And I'm like, who is touching me? Because I am in a bubble when I am in class. Like, just a bubble yes. of me. And for someone to burst that bubble was shocking. And then I was like, oh, I do know you. Yes, you can have paper. But you scared me. And I wasn't, like, ready for it. And are you positive it was just one sheet? Like, I feel like I might have been, like, more generous. But, I mean, I don't remember that part. But to be fair, if it was just one sheet, I did just ask for one sheet. So. True. Yeah. So. I just took you by your word. And <laughs> we've been best friends ever, not quite ever since that moment, but <laughs> several months later. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So we it felt, worked out. Yeah. yeah. We got past that social awkward boundary and uh, it's. Yeah, you yeah. popped my bubble. Did you ever return <laughs> the sheet of paper? <laughs> no. Yeah, you asked no. to borrow it. <clears throat> yeah. No, but I'm sure I lent you some paper somewhere along the line. In the really? next four years. I'm, I'm also sure, sure Caitlin was, was always prepared. prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. She might be your best friend, but she's my kindred spirit. So exactly. <laughs> That is true. <laughs> yes. All right. And then in the spirit of uh, getting to know each other even more and our listeners getting to know our guests, we're going to go through a really quick um, icebreaker question from our fun list of would you rather literary edition the bookish would you rather again it can be found on google um so the question we're going to answer to this this month is would you rather be friends with hermione granger or matilda wormwood who wants to start start with our guests okay put them on the spot whoever whoever's ready yeah go for it so I unfortunately have never actually read Matilda. The only Matilda I have um, experienced is through the movie. But even regardless, I 100% would want to be friends with Hermione because I feel like she is me. Like we are the same person and we would probably get along very well because we constantly want to be perfect and we're good at school and we have our friendships and we hold on to them tightly. And she is just my type of person. And I would love to know her and be able to do magic, of course. And Hermione Granger would for sure share one piece of parchment with Harry Potter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but she would make him work to get the answers himself. Yes. Well, at the risk of... of- stepping on some some people's toes i i too also would be friends with hermione but i think she would annoy me a lot (laughs) my relation my relationship with hermione has changed over the years as i went from loving her and identifying with her to being like wow she can be really like you know closed-minded and dismissive of anything that she can't like prove by you know looking it up in a book and she's super over prepared but you know, sometimes you got to fly by the seat of your pants, Hermione. Like, you can't just, <laughs> you, you can't prepare for everything. Although she really does save the day by doing exactly that a lot. But I feel like if I were friends with Matilda, I would just, like, get very caught up in, like, the 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 generational trauma that that is so dark in that story that I did not mm-hmm. pick up on when I was a kid. 
And I would yeah. just sit there being like, let's hold space for you. And let's, let's hold space for the trench bowl who's equally damaged in so many ways that they don't go into in the book. So I, I don't think I could be friends with Matilda. I think I'd end up being her That'd therapist. That'd be draining. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be very draining. That's really well said. Yeah. I don't think I have anything to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop number one for Courtney. <laughs> does, does anyone else want to jump in? Julia. Go, Megan? Julia. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say Matilda because I feel like she needs it more. Oh. <laughs> now I'm an asshole. <laughs> um, it ends up, she ends up very happy with Miss Honey, and I would love to meet Miss Honey. So, would you be friends with her as an adult, or would, because that could be problematic if you're well, just some random adult? <laughs> I was that's what I was thinking too. Like, are we thinking are we their age or are they adults now? Because like Hermione, I would hope, is not as annoying now as an adult or close minded. Like she has learned her way out of that. Megan, your turn. <laughs> I can't decide. I've been trying to decide this whole time. And I feel like you know that one episode of Modern Family when Cam is talking about uh, Sophie's choice and he's like, it, <laughs> I've never seen Sophie's choice, but that's, I can't decide. That's, that's how I feel right now. Real Sophie's choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I feel like I would want to be friends with child Matilda when I was a child and then adult Hermione. And I, I can't explain. Katie. I, I, no, I, good, I really don't good know. Pos- I can't decide. Good podcasting. Thank you. Both. I want to be friends with both. Who would you rather be friends with, Katie, uh, Hermione or Matilda? I really can't decide either. And I think I've become even more confused hearing everyone's takes because I agree with all of them for different reasons. I think if I am talking about as a friend or as a child who I would have been um, friends with at the ages that they are in the books, I think my initial reaction would have been Matilda um, because I think her experience and her abilities were so unique and interesting in a place where magic is not common that I would have been really drawn to her for those reasons and and really fascinated by the things that she could do. Um, And her, her intellect was also, you know, really bright and, um, uncommon for the, the the surroundings that she was in. It was, she was that way despite all of the things she was going through. So I think if I'm answering the question of at the point in time, you know, I'm the same age as the characters, I, I probably would have been more drawn to her, but that's not to say I wouldn't have also been friends with Hermione if that was the world I was in. So that's a complete non-answer, but I would say leaning on the side of Matilda, if I'm putting it in that framework. So we all did a thing. Um, We all decided to um, dive into a book called Spinning Straw into Gold, What Fairy Tales Reveal About the Transformations in a Woman's Life. And this gave us the opportunity to kind of re-examine some of the the fairy tales that we were brought up with as children. Most children are exposed to to fairy tales growing up. I won't say all, but many. Um, I would say, I'll, I'll look at 
look around the room. I know my sisters and I all grew up watching um, Disney fairy tales and um, Courtney and, and Caitlin, is that the same for you? Probably as parents, you're still watching them. <laughs> yes, I'm starting to rewatch all of them and see them again. Be like, gosh, this movie was more boring than I remember. Like, as an adult <laughs> now, like, huh, I don't know if I like it anymore. <laughs> Agree. I watched all of the Disney stuff as a kid, and I've watched it all again. I've, I have many thoughts. As <laughs> do I. That's a different conversation. <laughs> Yeah, as do I. So to kind of kick off what this this conversation is going to be about. So we this book is um, presents a lot of concepts and we decided to um, cut it into a little bit more um, digestible focused um, set of topics so that we could get through it all in less than six hours on a podcast <laughs> because there's a lot of stuff in this book. So the way that we um, we put this together was we each uh, as a, a grouping, Courtney and I um, focused on the chapters devoted to Snow White. Megan and Caitlin focused on the chapters devoted to Cinderella. And Julia focused on the the, cha- the chapters devoted to Sleeping Beauty. So we each came up with some discussion questions. We're going to go around and, and kind of talk through some of those and, and, you know, really dive into our analysis of this book and our experience with it. Um, just to kind of talk about what it is and, and give a little bit of, it's not really a synopsis, it's more of a, an introduction, and, and these notes come from the author's um, introduction to the book, and the, the writer of the book is Joan Gould. Um, the book is really about talking about how uh, the themes in fairy tales are uh, indicative of transformation of the heroine, and it really focuses on, on fairy tales that are heroine-centric um, as opposed to, you know, so women's stories as opposed to men, to men's stories as being the central character. Um, and the book is broken into th- the three stages in a woman's life as are defined by fairy tales, the, the maiden, the matron, and the crone. Um, all of the chapters that we read were part of the, the maiden section of the book. So we didn't, we didn't get into the other phases of, of uh, a woman's life, but really what this foot, this, book is it's an exploration of the way fairy tales have themes about the different stages of a woman's life and those have to do with changes in consciousness as well as biology all right so just to start off the conversation um wanted to go around and really talk about just what was our overall reaction to the book um whether that you know made you look at fairy tales differently was there anything about the concepts presented that you really identified with or that you really disagreed with he has a burning start. desire to start. Cool. I can start. And hope I don't ruffle any feathers, but um, I had a bit of a difficult time with this book. I did read the whole thing. Um, so I read all of the maiden, the matron, and the crone parts. And I just kind of felt like it wasn't rooted in feminism. So it just kind of like made me feel like women are only good to move from pretty young things to who are waiting to be rescued to mothers that turn into the most evil creatures imaginable and then become dried up hags because they've given themselves to everybody else else with nothing left for them. And I'm hoping Courtney would like to talk me out of this. (laughs) (laughs) I have some, some defenses as well, but I'll let Courtney open up a response to that. So I, um, that it, it's really funny because I've read this book many times and I've, I've read it at least twice for my own book club. And, um, 
this is one of those things that I read when I was like much, probably at least a good 10 years younger. And I loved it. And my, like I, all of my friends that I read it with in my book club loved it, but I read it now. And I honestly, <laughs> I actually read it and I thought, my God, you guys are going to see me as like <laughs> anti-feminist, like, like super backwards, like women are only good for one thing. Cause I didn't realize that these themes in this book, I, I don't know if they just didn't strike me um, as much when I was younger, which is weird. Cause I was much more, I, I think attuned to that than when I was younger, but I don't know. Anyways. Um, but so I totally see where you're coming from. Cause there were definitely some things this reading that did not sit well with me. And I was kind of playing like back and forth in my mind that it like, and I think where I ultimately land in this is that you have to buy into her thesis. And the thesis is that this is not about um, examining women's roles in this cultural moment. It's about re-examining the, the myths and these these like archetypes that have existed and, and grown out of these cultures for you know hundreds or even thousands of years. And in that sense, women, like for much of that time, women's roles were so much less open and, and much more prescribed and constrictive. And I mean, I think that there are always exceptions to that. Like we, there are many women who've, who've done things in history that are not like that, that are not just made in matron and crone. But I think that the point she's trying to make is that these fairy tales are, they are showing how women the these archetypes of women have come up over the years and and that in a very different way from being action oriented or out outwardly oriented um these women are just as empowered because what they're doing is is a lot of inner and transformational work but that being said it doesn't always resonate <laughs> like i read a thing like yesterday in like chapter six or seven where she's like you know a, a girl moving into puberty wants a baby, even though she doesn't really even know she wants a baby. And I'm like, that's not a thing. Like, that's not yeah. a thing. I think I think I actually have a note in there during that part. I'm like, no, no, it's, it's her choice <laughs> never, to have a baby. Never, I, I'm just gonna say, for me personally, never did I ever at 14 go, I think I want a baby. So I mean, like, <laughs> I I think for me, I can still it is empowering but I think that I have to look at it as a reinterpretation of of archetypes that and, and a reimagining of, of women is not passive as they're seen or not princesses needing to be rescued but I don't think that you can take feminism as we define it today and apply it to a lot of the women and the the because I don't think they match up I I don't think the box it's like if I'm looking at a Venn diagram I don't know that the Venn diagram of the the archetypes of fairy tales and the Venn diagram of feminism as we define it in 22 overlap very much. I've talked yeah. a lot. Discuss. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Just looking, this this book was published in 2005, and I think there has been a large cultural change Shift, yeah. since then. So Absolutely. I would be interested to see this book updated with maybe some of the modern culture sprinkled in there to be like this is what they did back then but I don't know I don't know if that's goes against her thesis but 
Yeah, I, I didn't I find it relatable. I see. Yeah, no, I, I can see where you're coming from. I agree that there are pieces of this that are really discordant with the way today, the, the way things are today and the way we think about things today. Um, but I, I think if you do read it through that lens of of what her thesis is meant to be, it actually, for me, my experience in reading it, although there were some moments when I was like, mm, maybe some more context could have been given there or, you know, but, but I think part of what she's doing is just is putting out these examples of of things in in real life that that do happen and do still happen, but they're they are overgeneralizations, um, but they are, you know, examples of things that can be tied back to the themes of these stories. And I, I think she, a big part of what she does, and we'll get into this later on uh, towards the end of the podcast when we do a discussion about, you know, how Walt Disney um, put his own spin on some of these stories. I think part of what she does, and and at least my my shift in looking at these stories, because my view of them has largely been, you know, the Walt Disney version, is actually empowering because she talks about how, you know, these stories at their core, when they were written, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, when women's roles were very, very different, were about the heroine's transformation and the work that she has to do to to move into the different stages of her life. Um, and in stories like that and, and in themes and archetypes, those are those are kind of rigid. You know, they're not fluid like they are in, in real life, but th- that's all they are is themes and symbols. Um, so I, I think it, it looking at it and understanding that that's what they were meant to be and hearing it from, you know, hearing the source, the original story and, and hearing how or reading how, um, you know, she put symbolism in, into that and what these things mean. I walked away from these stories feeling like the heroine was more, way more empowered than in the the Disney version of, you know, like they they have to wait for their prince to come and save them because that's not what they were originally intended to be. Um, so I I actually felt more connected to these stories than I think I ever have. I agree with that, Kate. I feel like the parts of the book that I really enjoyed were when she was just talking about the story or comparing it to another story. Like, I really enjoyed uh, the section of the Cinderella chapter where she was pulling out the the various themes from Cinderella in the movie Pretty Woman. My issues that I had with the book that made me, like, want to chuck it across the room or or (laughs) when she tried to then like you said Katie overgeneralize and apply it to real life like one of my notes all I wrote down was eye roll um (laughs) (laughs) on page 45 she wrote if a career woman with short hair lets her hair grow long or dyes it another color keep a sharp lookout for the romantic development that's sure to follow and it's like no, 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 no. So it's wasn't, just like, wasn't that supposed to be like within a like a romantic comedy though? And that I read that part as like within some no, sort of no. The first sentence that was like of life. that paragraph, the first three words of that paragraph are in real life. Oh, yeah. Hey, so it's stand like down. she Megan Mike drop. There were just some points where she went just one step too far where I was like okay I like this I see where she's going with this and then all of a sudden like there was a part where she was talking about how when the girl is going through puberty in real life she moves away from her dad because her dad all of a sudden wants to have sex with her and it's like 
Yeah, that part yes. made me Cringe. very uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I wrote on that one, there had to have been a less disgusting way to cover this concept. <laughs> um, Megan, you made a point about that I also found it really interesting when she was just talking about the stories or comparing just the stories to each other. Mm-hmm. I really liked how throughout the whole book she talked about Persephone and Hades, which um, I had just finished reading um, a webtoon comic called Lore Olympus. Like I read the whole arc and I remember thinking throughout the whole thing, I was like, I wonder how much this actually ties back to the original myth, the original story. And just from what I read throughout the book it seems like it was pretty it has been pretty faithful to that story um Mm -hmm. which laura olympus is an interesting look at these old archetypes being updated for modern times which totally agree mm -hmm. very much recommend checking out that that comic everyone should read that i stand laura olympus (laughs) caitlin what were your initial thoughts on the book so Mostly hatred. Um, (laughs) When I started reading the book, I got offended very quickly by it. And that definitely clouded my judgment. I'd say by the time I finally finished where I left off in the book, which was the Cinderella story, I was starting to soften. And I could see like a little bit of like a glimmer of hope. But I just remember like a part where she's like, oh, all teenage girls do is look in the mirror at themselves for hours and hours. And I'm like, who, like, who do you think we are? Are we that basic of an individual? And I mean, I kind of get what you're saying, Courtney. You have to look at it through a lens because you do. She's overgeneralizing lots of things, trying to get a point across. But I just became so offended, like in and out for females, for males, because she was just belittling male experiences too and saying that basically. Yeah, that is true all they care about is the thing between their legs. And I'm like, there's more to individuals than just that. Mm -hmm. And you're really diminishing people and the life experiences and what we go through. And a lot of these stories, you have to look through different cultural lenses. Like when she's saying that females, once they're done mothering and they turn into the evil stepmother because they're no longer fertile and beautiful. Well, that depends on the culture you're talking about. In some cultures, those women are the most revered and looked after Mm -hmm. because they have those life experiences. And I just, I mean, in a way I want to finish the book, but I don't think I'm going to make it through because my emotions were just so strong and I just became (laughs) offended too often. But I get what she was trying to say. Maybe if there was a rewrite of it and there was a little less talk of being like sexually attracted to your dad maybe I could make it through a little (laughs) bit more yeah a little a little bit less of that like I feel like if I were to make it through the rest of the book I would have to just skip out the chunks where she's actually trying to apply it to real life and just focus on the chunks where she's talking about the fairy tales and the and other stories that follow the same archetypes I agree because I mean I liked how she would present some of the fairy tales and make you think about it in a different way like oh Mm -hmm. I can see how you can make a valid valid argument of that but I just Mm -hmm. became so offended over and over again when she would apply it to a real life person because I'm a real life person and I don't agree with what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I think it was definitely the weakest point in this I I think that the parts that are the strongest is when she is like retelling the stories that like we all know the basic 
like roadmaps of like nobody doesn't know what happens in Cinderella but like mm-hmm. she retells it from this way that you're like oh I never thought of it that way and then I really liked the way she she especially with like some of the like she would bring up different um different cultures that have that story so you would hear several different versions of Cinderella and then she I even liked the way she did tie it into modern storytelling so like with Pretty Woman or when she was talking about other examples of like you know movies and pop culture but yeah I think that the heart the the part that I don't know that it stands up as well as the rest of her analysis is when she's bringing in real life experiences and I don't even know that it would have been a bad thing if she brought in her own life experience like I thought that it was a very um she definitely had a certain point of view from her own past and her mm-hmm. own relationship with her mother and you know you know having her husband you know like pass away and, and sort of making crossing like that making that transition and I I even think if she kept it to that then you mm-hmm. know she's the author of her own experience so she could speak to that and I I'm not going to say it's not valid but I, I agree it, that when she would bring in all these other real life women and experiences I kind of I, I feel like it it almost it was too distracting. It, uh, yeah. it almost like was like I don't know that I agree with this, and I don't actually think that it helps make the point that you want to make. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. If she would have took it, the fairy tales and the lessons she was trying to teach and just applied it to her own experience, I would have a very different opinion about this book. Um, but the fact that it was just all of the overgeneralizations was what made it a bit problematic. I agree also I mean I even looked up who she was and like are you a mother like are you a mother were you married like do you have these life experiences because from what I read it was so narrow of a view I was like have you gone through these phases or not so I was kind of shocked that she had like three children and a husband and all of that too. Yeah, and I, I think what narrows the view, again, if you're looking at it through the lens of what her thesis is, to bring it back to, I think, what her intention was, even though as as we're pointing out and, and identifying that there's certain certain areas of the way that she approached that, that that didn't achieve what, at least what we wanted to get out of it today. Maybe it would have been very different if we'd read it 20 years ago when it came out and opinions and, and attitudes were a little bit different than they are now. Um, you know, I think there's... I think there's been, as we said, a, a cultural shift when it comes to to some of these topics. Um, but I think part of what made them so narrow is because she was she was trying to make them fit into the symbolism of what she was trying to to illustrate. But I but I think everyone is absolutely right that she could have actually made that point more effective if she'd left that stuff out, at yeah. least from the way that we're reading it now. Yeah, and let us kind of apply it to our own lives as mm-hmm. we see fit. Yeah, yeah, because I definitely found a lot of opportunities to to do that within my own life, and and did identify with a lot of of uh, the the concepts that she introduced, and um, felt like some of the the story parts of the stories that I'd never thought about before were made made much more sense and just kind of illuminated it for me. So very good. Any last thoughts about? kind of our overall reactions did we get it all out I feel better (laughs) so we have a complicated relationship with this book there's there's parts of it that we identify with but parts of it that maybe we don't and we're going to keep talking about it 
All right. So we're going to start the the opening um, fairy tale that this book presents is Snow White. And that was the uh, there was the first two chapters. Um, Courtney and I were responsible for bringing some discussion questions to that. So to start it off, um, the first two chapters of the book are devoted to the fairy tale Snow White. And Courtney and I were responsible for bringing some discussion questions to the group around that. The first one that we're going to talk through um, talks about the colors that are in the story. So colors are really symbolic in this fairy tale, white, red, black, and gold. How do these colors appear and what do they mean throughout the course of the tale, both to Snow White and to the Evil Queen? So I thought this was a really interesting concept that was presented because it wasn't one that I'd, I'd ever really thought about. And it was a really cool way to open up the book because she's already laid out this is going to be the structure. It's maiden, matron, crone. And that's what these three colors actually represent. So white is um, is the maiden, red is the matron, and black is the crone. So white is has to do with innocence, purity, and light without heat. And red is quite literally meant to symbolize menstrual blood um, and, and what happens, you know, when you become when you move from childhood to to womanhood and what that means biologically and it also represents sex and then black um brings in some really interesting concepts around unconsciousness and death um and, and that kind of moves more in, into the crone space but as we know in um this story as well as when we get into sleeping beauty unconsciousness and and sleep plays a very big part of of the the role in the story so um as far as like what the colors mean to the different characters, uh, you know, Snow White is moving from white into red and the evil queen is seeing her move from white into red and is feeling like she's being pushed from red into black. And then she feels very, um, that like it's, it's happening before she's ready for that to happen. So she has to lash out and, and stop this process from happening. She wants to stop Snow White's transformation so that her own transformation gets frozen and she stays within this, you know, vital young stage of her life. And she actually becomes the agent of transformation and, and is what pushes Snow White out of the home and um, starts her adventure and, and actually transforms from child into woman. Um, so that that's, and then the, the last uh, color that they talk about is gold, which is, um, you know, where she, as she goes through the whole story and, and we all know what happens, you know, she eats the apple and she appears to be dead, but she's, she's really not. Um, and she's put into, um, a, a glass coffin that has gold writing on it. And that's, that's where the gold comes in. And then the, the prince shows up and she winds up, you know, becoming a higher, you know, a, a more elevated version of herself. All right. So that was that was my view and kind of take on how she described the the different colors and what they meant throughout the story. Courtney, do you, was there anything that I missed or anything you want to add to that or or any other impressions that you had? Um, I think you actually did a really great job of, of bringing up like how it how the, the the fairy tale of Snow White uses those colors. And actually, I was making connections when you were talking about it that I didn't make when I read it. I really like that. Like she is, it's not just a trans, it's not just a transition for Snow White. Um, it didn't even really occur to me that it, it's equally a transition for her mother or her stepmother. 
and her stepmother is resisting because she doesn't feel ready like I'm not ready to be like that um weirdly like I that in a weird way is like I can relate to that as a mom like I sometimes look at my daughter and I go I can't believe you're nine like how are you nine I feel like I'm still 18 I never like <laughs> definitely maturity wise so <laughs> <laughs> so in a weird way like as you were talking about that I'm like okay that actually really resonated for me in a way that um like moving from that red to black, so to speak, I thought, wow, that's like, it's that like grappling with aging. So Snow White's grappling with aging, but in a um, sort of an acceleration of like, you're, she's reaching, she's going to reach her, you know, whatever if we want to call it her peak, or I don't know if you would define it as that, but like, you know, from the premise of this book, her, her peak, her purpose, but then the, the queen also is grappling with aging too. So they're both like, you know struggling with this concept of time passing and and transitions and developing but um coming at it from different places on that timeline and I just thought the way you described that was really well said and and the way that it um the way that the the use of the the different colors actually really kind of illuminated that for me I'd love to hear other people's thoughts I um also agree with you Courtney like Obviously, I saw the transition for Snow White with the colors, but I hadn't applied it to the stepmother. And yeah, she is 100% fighting against that. Like, well, just because my stepdaughter is coming into her prime doesn't mean my time is over. And trying to halt that as best as she could and feeding her a poison apple was what she thought was the best way to stop it. <laughs> her her first attempt was to eat her heart, but... Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit of an over overreaction but this is this is what happens in fairy tales <laughs> yes it is a fairy tale <laughs> all right I'm so our, apologist. Our, what's that just to the queen katie but i do want to say having a strong-willed daughter i can sort of relate to wanting to eat your daughter's heart <laughs> <laughs> so relatable I'm not advocating that i am not <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> some days. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, wonderful segue, Courtney, into your question that you brought. <laughs> the terrible mother is posited. <laughs> <laughs> the terrible mother is posited by the author as an agent of growth. If the queen hadn't become jealous of Snow White, none of the events of the story take place. So the terrible mother is a necessity. What happens if a terrible mo mother never comes along? What if the good mother remains? What happens then? So I thought about this and I wrote this down. Like I wrote that question down before I had finished rereading the chapters on Snow White. So I think that, that Joan Gould actually does go into that a little bit. But I kind of was thinking about it like, so it, the terrible mother is is like she, like we were saying she's this age she's kind of what propels all of the action here like nothing happens if if the queen doesn't get jealous but what if the queen doesn't get that's what prompts you know Snow White to transform and to become go from being a child to you know being on that path to adulthood and my thought was what happens when you don't have that dynamic what happens when you don't when you just always have the the good mother and and so she speaks a little bit to that she speaks of always you know i i think that the 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 premise she was making was that like the good mother 
wants her child to always stay a child. And so if you don't have that transition at some point, like the, all right, move out of the nest, come on, you're, you got to move forward. It's, it's, um, own problems and it causes its own dysfunction. Um, I think I was, I was thinking about how the, in my mind, the best example of a good mother that's allowed to run amok without being, without being checked is, is, um, the witch that kidnaps Rapunzel. Um, and if you ever watched the the movie or saw the Broadway show Into the Woods, it's it's so heartbreaking because like when when the witch, you know, has they have this confrontation and she realizes that that Rapunzel has been sort of um, you know, going behind her back all along while she thought her daughter was just safe in this tower and this home she made for her to protect her from the world. And, and the witch sings this, like such a heartbreaking song. She sings like, stay with me while you can be a child. No one will ever love you more than I. And it's, it's tragic because she's like the ultimate, she, she's a good, she's the good mother that was never reined in. And what ended up happening was this, rift between her and her daughter as a result because her daughter never was allowed to develop so it's weird that's thinking about how even though it can be as seen in, in Snow White a, a traumatic thing to have this terrible mother that that then you that, that starts you on this journey it could equally be a terrible thing to have a good mother that never allows you to to develop and make that journey toward adulthood and self-sufficiency I'd like to know what other people think of that, though. I think that's I fascinating. Ask... <laughs> yeah. But Sorry. I would also yeah. say that that's not necessarily a good mother either, because you're yeah. not allowing yourself to be the good mother of allowing your child to grow up and understanding that those are the phases that they have to go through. So I'm not sure exactly what term you would call that mother, like the well-meaning mother that... <laughs> Holds the on mother. to right. Yeah, the, the smother. smother. There we go. I like it. <laughs> the smother. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I, I think mean... I think oh sorry. Oh no. Sorry to interrupt. I was just gonna say I think that um the concepts of the good mother and the terrible mother are, you know, we know in real life that there's there's a spectrum there, right? It's not mm -hmm. one or the other. Um and I, I think what she's talking about is like in these stories, that's all we see. Like there's, we don't see, cause these are all cautionary tales, right? We don't see the person that does it right ever, <laughs> you know, right. we see, mm -hmm. we see one or the other and, and it's all like this, these are things to watch out for so that you don't fall into those same tendencies or temptations or, you know, traps of your own, whatever it may be, jealousy, selfishness, um, you know, and, and as you said, Courtney, she, she brings up a lot of, this theme throughout the stories of, you know, again, this is an overgeneralization and could be seen as anti-feminist, but the, the idea in these stories that a woman wants above all else to have a child, because you know that that's the type of love that you're never going to experience. Like you're going to be you're going to love someone and someone's going to love you more than anyone else in the world. And that's that's a unique experience. And as you start to lose that, that's when even the same person can shift from like in, in the child's perspective from being the good mother, like you're the the person that loves me more than anything to being the terrible mother. And in some of these stories, that's when it's almost like this could be the same person, but 
symbolically they're swapping it out with a another character because in the perception of the child like this can't be my mother this is an imposter right so that's a super interesting idea it's almost like the good mother and the terrible mother while being their archetype archetypes they're not you know like to your point katie no one is all good and all bad it's almost like it's not that they make this shift it's just the shift in the way the child sees them based on where that child or that that girl is in her development when you're a child you need that good mother and that's typically what you'll you'll see and then as you get older and you start to try to figure out who you are away from your parents you you do a lot to separate yourself from from your parents and especially from like your parents like you're the parent that is the same gender as you a lot of times like oh I don't I don't want to be that way or I don't like doing that and in that way it's like you become like the then your mother becomes the terrible mother in that way it's not really that they were any different but you are seeing them differently or you're seeing you're assigning them a different role but they that's who they've always been and they could also be responding to you and you being the child and pulling away from them and, you know, trying to make your own way. And that could be a perception of them feeling rejection and, and, or, you know, just, I remember butting heads with my mom quite a lot. She was the same person, but I was bringing out some things in her that maybe weren't parts of her that she liked very much because I was not always nice to her, <laughs> you know? So some of that is, is response to the dynamic between, you know, the, the mother and daughter and what's happening there. And it's, you know, like you said, it's, it's the same person. It's not a different person, but it's just a shift in the dynamic. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. it I don't know if anybody else has other thoughts. <laughs> um, I had, I just, this, I'll just throw this in here um, because it doesn't really relate to the questions I picked for Sleeping Beauty, but I read the original fairy tale by Charles Perrault and, um, the terrible mother in that story was actually the prince's mom, which I thought was interesting. And in yeah. nowhere in any other version of the story have I ever heard anything about the prince's mom. But she is actually of ogre descent, which was like interesting. <laughs> and his dad only married her for her money. So that's always a lovely way to start a, a marriage. Um, but I just thought it was interesting that really in the original, which we can talk more about later, but in the original fairy tale, the villain for Sleeping of, Beauty. The, of Sleeping Beauty clarify, yeah. for Sleeping Beauty, the villain of the story is the prince's mom and not the old fairy. Not Maleficent. Right. Not Maleficent. Um, so yeah, there, there, I didn't, I, I will be honest. I didn't read the Snow White or Cinderella um, original fairy tale. So I'll be interested to hear what other differences are. Oh, I can't wait for that part. I'm there. excited for that um, part of the discussion. But yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting. And then when, um, yeah, the Do terrible mother in Sleeping Beauty. Then? We could. The terrible mother in Sleeping Beauty, um, the original story, um, ends up throwing herself in a pot of uh, lizards and bugs and serpents and they eat her alive because <laughs> her son comes back and realizes oh you were trying to eat my family <laughs> <laughs> so she took care of herself didn't yeah. I don't know if she was remorseful or if she just thought oh well I've been caught the jig is up <laughs> <laughs> 
Was that her? Was that her way of being like, my bad? I think so. <laughs> it's the ultimate passive aggressive martyrdom mother move. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, oh well. <laughs> Again, sorry an to... overgeneralization. Yes. Sorry. Sorry to hijack that. No, that's a, a good, a really good um, thing segue. to insert there because, yeah, a good seg. Well, not really a good segue, but a good, a good thing to enhance the conversation because I, I hadn't thought about. I was thinking it more in in the in the framework of um, so Snow White and Cinderella because it's it's definitely in the versions that we know really well that theme is much more prevalent. But you're right, Julia. It, it's actually also part of. Sleeping Beauty in the original version, which is really cool. Yeah, that original version of Sleeping Beauty is really weird. It was kind of <laughs> wild. All right. Okay, so <clears throat> Megan and Caitlin, um, the two of you put together some questions for the Cinderella chapters. And the first one is, what are your thoughts on the theme of Cinderella not being rags to riches but actually being riches to rags to greater riches yeah so this was one of the parts of the book that i started to shift me to be like okay i i kind of like some of the points that she's making in this because i had never thought of looking at fairy tales on a more deeper level other than trying to figure out why these stories were created in the in the first place oftentimes people say fairy tales are you know meant to be cautionary tales mm-hmm. um but i think with this point that she makes there's much more to learn from fairy tales than just you know avoid strangers and don't eat food given to you that you don't know where it came from <laughs> um you know so don't this, touch sharp objects <laughs> that too <laughs> yeah um so this this it's like a very subtle shift in the like looking at the theme of the story um cuz everybody says cinderella rags to riches right you go from not having nothing to having something but really she started off as a princess maybe not a princess but at least having wealth um and then when her mother dies and her father remarries, all of a sudden her stepmother and stepsisters are what's important to him and no longer Cinderella. So she goes from having wealth to having nothing to then getting getting with the prince and having even greater riches than before. So I thought that was interesting and can definitely be mirrored in other stories as well as parts of life, um, you know, you start with a challenge and you feel like you're good before the challenge and you go through the challenge and you feel pretty poopy and then you come out the other side and having grown. So I thought that was a really interesting shift in the, in the theme to me. See, like I understood what she was saying and it does apply to Cinderella herself, but I think the reason people um, identify with Cinderella more so is because of the rags to riches point of view. Most people mm-hmm. don't start out with the riches go to rags, go to riches. Like that is Cinderella's storyline and where she came from. Um, but people identify most of it because they're like, well, if she can go from nothing to something, that means I can do the same thing. That yeah. I have a greater meaning and a greater story. And what I feel inside of me one day will come to fruition and that I will become that person I am supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought Joan 
had an interesting point of view. Um, it was later in the story about how social distinctions were inborn into people. So Cinderella knew how to be a princess and knew how to dance and all these things because she was born into that distinction. So that mm-hmm. goes along with the fairy tale, but how it's morphed nowadays into the rags to riches is so that people can identify with it more mm-hmm. in our current, you know, society. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. super interesting. I, I think I think that's I think that really resonates. And she does talk about and and as we get into kind of the the Walt Disney versions on this, she does talk about how these stories are stories that were told countless times before they were ever even written down so there's like more versions of them than we can even fathom most likely and they continue to be you know riffed on and 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 looked at from a different point of view to make it more contemporary and more relatable to people today and I I think I think that's part of what's so interesting about them to see how they have evolved Um, but I, I think that's a really a really um astute observation that the the theme of rags to riches is more relatable to people today than riches to rags to riches. But if you also look at it from what it's meant to mean symbolically from the original story, it's interesting too, because it's it's not so much the literal sense of class, but it's also the the story of the transformation of the female going through her maturity. So riches, like you start out as this child who, you know, like every, the world is open to you. Everything is joyful. Everything is, everything is play. Everything is a game to hitting adolescence and having your life be completely upended and confusing for a while. Um, And you have to really work through that and, and come to a greater sense of self to get back to even greater riches and be, you know, that, that stronger version of yourself. But adolescence is, is tough for, it was tough for me. I'll speak for myself. I think it's tough for a lot of people. It's tough for mm-hmm. most people. But I, if you think at it, think about it from that perspective, it's really interesting because she talks about specifically within the three stories that we focused on, you know, what is the, what is the, the indication that that person is going through some sort of transformation for Snow White and Sleeping Beauty? They, they go to sleep until, you know, their, their emotions can catch up with going with what's going on in their bodies. And for Cinderella, she works and she's, she calls it watchful waiting, I think, where she's, Mm -hmm. you know, she's, um, she's kind of observing the world and she's, she's staying hidden behind her rags because that's, if she were to, you know, put herself out there in, in the type of garb that her stepsisters do, that would make her vulnerable to, you know, maybe something she's not ready for yet. Um, so I, I, I think both of those perspectives and, and ideas of what the stories mean are, are super valid, depending on, you know, what, what it is it means to you. I, I think it's really interesting that um, I, I kind of to your point, Katie, when we were, I was thinking about the riches to rags to riches. What I, what I really, I mean, we've spent some time talking about some of the things that, that kind of don't, don't hit quite right with some of this book, but one thing that I actually really love is, is where she says, and I, I had to find it, the moment of transformation, uh, at the moment of transformation, Cinderella falls in love with herself, which mm. is the necessary prelude before she can be loved by anyone else. Her fairy godmother is filled her with pride, which shines through her body and looks from the outside like a gold and silver gown. And I just love that idea that like her trans, like Cinderella's transformation is not is not that she got she got a makeover and and a man. <laughs> it's that she, mm-hmm. 
it, it's that she was able to like I, I don't know to to sound a little bit like Tony Robbinsy. She stepped into her power. Like she mm-hmm. she got she like recognized and and was unapologetically herself. And then in that moment, that is when it's not a coincidence that that's when she she meets this man but he was never the end goal he was just he was there when she was ready but that was not the point that mm-hmm. I kind of like lo- I kind of loved that yeah yeah I I agree yeah. and that that's mm-hmm. what he's drawn to is is her sense of self and her confidence as opposed to what she's wearing or how she looks yeah exactly I I liked that she made that point there that I was like okay I'm still with you Joan no I agree like of everything I read Cinderella I was like I get what you're saying because yeah it was a conscious decision that she made of asking like I want to go and I want to go to that ball and then here comes your fairy godmother to give you the necessary things you need but that change did happen in herself where she requested it because she knew her worth yes very well said yeah Mm -hmm. and I, I think this one stands out from the other two in the sense that the the journey of transformation that they take is, and we'll, we'll probably get into a little bit more later, but if you look at it just at the surface, she has so much more agency in that transformation than the other two that that fall asleep and and just kind of check out until they're ready to, to re-engage, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I love that about this story. Mm-hmm. Are we ready to move on to Sleeping Beauty? Sorry, I'm awake now. <laughs> <laughs> she's doing a little transforming. She's she getting a joke. <laughs> How long have you been have you been waiting the whole episode to do that? No, it just came to me. <laughs> sure. Julie's really the did. pro podcaster around here. That is true. All yeah, right. Good so timing. What can I say? You you actually you very much do. Mm-hmm. Um all right. So speaking of uh Sleeping Beauty, uh, Julia would like to know and is going is to talk to us a little bit about how important is sleep to you as a woman? Are you able to prioritize it? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing Courtney can't, but um, speaking as a woman, Caitlin. that was Caitlin. Speaking <laughs> yeah. as a woman, I wasn't looking at the screen, speaking as a woman with no children, <laughs> I probably am a little in a better position to do that. Um, But I thought it was interesting. I think Katie already talked about this, but um, that sleep is transforming in this story. And it's not just, she's not just sleeping, um, which is something that I can relate to because when I'm overwhelmed or I need to shut down from feelings, um, sleeping helps. Mm -hmm. And I think my favorite saying, probably my favorite thing that I got out of this book is the Irish folk saying, morning is wiser than evening. And I find that to be very true because I can go from maiden in the morning, sweet as pie, to the crone by the time it's time for me to go to sleep. That transformation happens daily. My boyfriend will tell you that is very true. (laughs) Um, But yeah, sleep is, it's not just important for women. It's important for life. It's important for sanity and for all yeah, humans for all humans not even just humans like it's important for pets all and life. animals just life in general if we don't sleep mm-hmm. we're not healing we're not transforming we're not getting to where we need to be short and sweet that's what i do here <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. Yeah, I I completely relate, especially to the part that you talked about where when you get overwhelmed with with your life, with your emotions, with anything, I I'm definitely someone who has to step back from that for a while and process. Um, sometimes that does mean going to sleep. Sometimes that just means stepping away from the problem and and letting myself not think about it directly, but it's, you know, it's always running in the back of your mind. And just that was something that throughout my life was kind of hard for me to articulate and understand. And, you know, especially if you're, especially if you're going through conflict with someone and that, that person processes information differently um, and they, they want to talk it out all at once, you know, like I've, I've encountered that throughout my life where that's how some people process is externally. And I'm definitely an internal processor. So I need to like spend time with myself. I need to step away from it. I need to give myself time. And that was how I kind of envisioned what what she meant by or how I related to what she meant by what Sleeping Beauty does. And in terms of, you know, she's she's having she's on the precipice of this huge life shift and change and she's not emotionally ready for it. So she's you know, it, it's not it's not a passive. I'm just going to fall asleep and check out. I, which I think I said earlier, but it's it's really not not what she's doing. She's she's giving herself the space she needs to approach that and be ready for it. Yeah, I think it's interesting because she talks about in the the books about how sleep isn't just about like sleep falling asleep, but sleep can also be like these periods of withdrawal of of like reflection. And I I and then also like I. I think Julia, you were the one who, who just said like, you know, it's also that, that act of healing. And it's mm-hmm. funny, like on a day-to-day basis for me, I, I don't prioritize sleep very much all because like my kids are getting older and that means they stay up later. And that means I have to stay up later if I want any me time after they go to bed. And it's just, it's a whole vicious cycle. But I think about like what happens when I do sleep, it's like, you know, the it's, it's it's restorative it it makes connections that don't you know i that i think she even talks about like sometimes your brain makes connections that when you're asleep that you try as hard as you might you you can't consciously make but i think that there's definitely like a there's something to be said about like physiologically like when you're processing something big or you're dealing with you know trauma i remember years and like years ago i was going through a really tough time and i i slept all the time, like for probably two or three months, like I slept eight or 10 hours a night, I would go to college and I would come home and I would take a nap and it was like, I would sleep on the weekend. Like, that's what I did. And I never really thought about it aside from being like, well, this is a rough patch, but looking at it in the framework of what she's talking about, it's like, I was dealing with a lot in that time period and sleep was my body's way of like just taking over and helping to process everything, which I thought was really interesting. And I think that's what, what ideally we're supposed to do every night, which I don't do enough of. Yeah. She also talks about how it's like almost an, a badge of honor that if, if you're sleeping, you're wasting time, like the, the least amount of sleep you can get, the more successful you'll be. And that's just. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think yeah. that was one of the points where I felt that she was overgeneralizing because she specifically labeled that as a masculine tendency, like men do yeah. this. Yeah. And but she also said that this is like Western, the Western approach to it. So she kind of also said, like, 
you could, I guess you could interpret it as, as her saying like the Western approach to this is a traditionally more masculine attitude. You can take that as you will. I, I didn't fully agree with her applying that to like only men do that. I think, yeah. I think plenty of women. Yeah. Do. My husband sleeps more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe slightly jealous of that as I'm poking him awake at 8 AM. Like I've been up for three hours. Wake up. <laughs> awesome all right any other thoughts on the wondrous world of sleep i mean i don't know how this exactly all applies but as you guys know i have two kids a four-year-old and an almost two-year-old and during that newborn phase you know you're going to be woken up every hour two hours three hours just it's how it is and i remember during those times my brain would actually cause me anxiety to like try and fall asleep because I knew I wouldn't get that restorative sleep that I needed. So mm-hmm. instead it was trying to almost keep me awake because it was like, well, would you rather stay awake and be the tired you are? Or would you rather fall asleep, be so close to getting that REM sleep that you need to like heal and be better, but get woken from it? Because it's just so shocking to your system when you are woken that frequently and you're desiring it so much that your brain is now not allowing you to even try to have it. Oh and that has been an interesting thing, becoming a mother and feeling that and just being the zombie of a new mom. How long does that phase last? It depends how good of a sleeper you have. I mean, I still have it now <laughs> to this day. I mean, my boys, for the most part, sleep no. through the night, but say they're sick. And then I'll be like, great, I'm not going to sleep tonight because they're sick. They're going to wake up. And then when they don't wake up, I'm like, oh, my gosh, they didn't wake up. But, like, I have that anxiety going to bed. Like, when are you going to wake up? When is the first time that you're not going to be able to sleep? And how often is that going to happen? So I still get a little bit of, like, sleep anxiety related to my children. Oh, man. Sorry. Okay. My kids are a little Something bit older. To look forward to. I have six-year-olds and a nine-year-old. And um, we're mostly out of that. We we have some sleep issues with with one of our our sons, but um, I can totally relate to the sleep anxiety thing. That's especially when they're sick. Like if even mm-hmm. now, my if my daughter gets sick, like you know, with stomach bug or something, it's like I'm I'm pretty much even if I like she's very self sufficient at night. Even if she's like not feeling good and having like tummy trouble, she'll like she she doesn't need us to be in the bathroom with her. But it's like I'm still awake. I'm awake the whole night with her. Just like it's a it's a solid I don't know it's an anxiety thing it's a solidarity thing it's a parental thing Mm -hmm. yeah it's like a mother thing because you know that they're gonna need you in some way like even if it's just you knowing what's going on with them yep yeah Mm -hmm. I want to give you guys both a hug right now (laughs) sleep will come yes someday Okay Someday right my sleep will come. <laughs> like in ten in ten years, I will sleep again, and this brain fog will lift. And who knows who I'll be then? I'll transform. Maybe, maybe you're in the process of transforming. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Are we ready to do our? comparison between the Disney versions versus the original versions. Do we want to jump into that? Sure. Cool. I think for me, and I don't, I don't want to steal the the other 
the thunder of the other two fairy tales. But I, I found some really similar themes from Snow White that I, I felt like maybe could be applicable, which is that the, the, the Walt Disney focus makes her so passive. She's just a victim of circumstance. She's, you know, taken in by these seven dwarves and, but like, I mean, she's so, it's, and then, you know, she gets tricked by the, the stepmother or the witch and she's, you know, and then she, only the prince can save her. It's like reading that if you only know about Snow White from Disney, which I think a lot of people now do, she's just so less. And it's so, it's it's just a love story. It's it's just a rescue story. And in the, in, in the retelling, the way that Joan put, it I really appreciated that it's not about the prince he's sort of almost like the prince is just like a symbol of you're ready to become self-actualized or or you are ready to move on to whatever you want to do next now that you are self-actualized like it's it's all about that process of like embracing your development and 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 once she does that like the prince is there but it's not about him and that's to me what i saw as the biggest difference in the 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 disneyified version versus the the analysis that that joan kind of puts forth absolutely i i agree with that i think that was the the biggest the biggest difference and she she kind of talks about that on the front end of the book about how she sees um you know the walt disney versions as being kind of more more having a patriarch patriarchal slant to them where they shift from the heroine's transformation to the hero's courage that becomes the central focus as opposed to you know this this woman becoming self-actualized like you said and i think that shows up in in a couple different ways um how it how it diverges from the the original telling of it in that the um the first one is that you know the 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 stepmother is supposed to be kind of the agent for transformation, the one that that pushes things forward. And in the movie, she does. She does push, you know, Snow White out of her home for fear of her life. And she she goes and she finds refuge with the um, the seven dwarfs, which I thought this concept was really interesting. She talked about them as being. You know, we talked about the good mother and the terrible mother. There's also themes in, in fairy tales of the good father. And they were supposed to be a a representation of the good father, split into seven parts, which made them less threatening because they were non-sexualized. They were not, you know, if, if it was like one man that she was with as a father figure, that might have been awkward. Um, but they were basically there in the original telling to be you know, her, her father that's shielding her from sexuality, like basically keeping her within her, within her, um, you know, as a child, like keeping her and helping her shield her innocence. Um, and, and they were trying to protect her from all of that in the movie. She becomes their mother. Like she treats them like children. She starts taking care of them and they what, act like children and they act like children. And that kind of belittles the work that she's going to have to do. Like if she can just snap into that mother role, it must be easy. Like there's no work involved in that. There's no self-actualization. She just became it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that makes the stepmother's role in the story 
less important as well because now she's just this evil being and that it's it's about good and evil versus you know this this is the agent for transformation and there's a reason for it it's just evil for evil's sake you know so i thought that was really interesting and then the other piece you were talking about too courtney with the the prince being kind of you know he's there because she's ready he's there because it's it, it's like i think she calls it in the book it's it's more of a, a graduation gift like he's he's supposed to be this representation of her coming into her own and this is kind of what she gets you know when when she reaches that as opposed to in the in this uh the movie he shows up in the first scene and he like pervades her story the rest of the time it like he's he's not there but he's like underpinning the motivation for what she's doing as opposed to her just becoming herself because she wants to become herself and then he appears he's like there the whole time um and the other thing the last thing point i want to make is that uh is around consent because in the original story um you know the the prince shows up and um sees her in her glass coffin and can you know after some time convinces the the dwarfs that he wants to take her with him he wants he's in love with her he wants to you know, he wants her to be with him. And as they are um, moving the the coffin, the the piece of the apple that's lodged in her throat dislodges. And it's like her body rejecting this the, or being ready to to let go of this, basically. It's like coming from her as opposed to him kissing her without consent and waking her up out of this, you know, this thing that she's waiting for him. It's, it's just a very different... It's, it seems subtle, but it's really not. Like it's a very different connotation to the two the two versions. So yeah. I thought that I thought those were really interesting things to compare. Mind blown. <laughs> Katie, <mic laughs> it's <drop>. not. <laughs> it, it's not in. It's it's not written in the Snow White section. But I loved this. I think I actually highlighted it and sent it to Katie because I was like, this is. This is how she's keeping me on her side. <laughs> like being feelings. But there's this part at the end of one of the chapters where she writes, at if at at any age, if we get a taste of who we are, if we fall in love with life in whatever form we find it and we choose to embrace it, we can fairly call that moment the prince's kiss. And I think that is just so perfect of an encapsulation of what she's trying to say. That the prince's kiss is just symbolic. It's just it's that. It, it symbolizes that the that the princess, in this case Snow White, developed into the person she was meant to be. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right. Anything we missed on Snow White that anyone wants to add? Other observations of differences? All right, Megan and Caitlin, take it away for Cinderella. I mean, I haven't watched Cinderella in a while, but I think. I I personally feel like there wasn't so much of a difference between the story that um, we were sent, like the original one, and what Disney did. I feel like there's quite a few similarities between yeah. those two, whereas I can see the Snow White, the meaning can be completely changed. And I didn't really pick up on that in Cinderella, so I'm very interested to see if you guys point out something that I have never noticed. Yeah, the o- The only thing that I kind of came to my mind while you were um putting on a a master class on snow white there (laughs) so uh the only thing that came to mind while katie was talking about snow white was um 
the moment when the fairy mo- fairy godmother comes to Cinderella, I feel like in the versions that uh, Joan Gould talked about in the book, um, were more like Cinderella kind of requested the fairy godmother to come. But in the Disney yeah. version, it was kind of like she was distraught and hysterically crying and the fairy godmother appeared based on her emotional need rather than Cinderella, like requesting her to be there. Um, which I thought also kind of the point that Courtney made was um, they kind of turned Snow White into a more passive character. I feel like the same thing kind of happened with Cinderella in that moment. Nice point. Yeah, that's true. I agree with you. I'm just going to go ahead and move on to Sleeping Beauty because that's kind of a good segue, Megan, talking about passive characters. Mm -hmm. Um, In Sleeping Beauty, the original fairy tale, both the princess who never is named, she's just either called the princess or the queen, and and the prince are both fairly passive. Like, he didn't have to fight a dragon. He didn't have to fight <laughs> at all to go get his princess. Um, so he, he, like, walks up to this town and sees this, this castle that's covered in like brambles. He's like, what's that? And they're like, well, there's apparently the most beautiful princess you'll ever see up there. And he's like, Oh, she must be mine. So he, and he just walks <laughs> in and everything just moves out of the way. And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> so, and then I told you about the terrible mother, the ogre. And um, I also thought it was interesting in the original story, there were seven fairies that were invited to the princesses. Um, christening and i'm just gonna say that walt disney changed that number to three because he had already had seven dwarves yeah and the old fairy maleficent in the walt disney movie is only in the beginning part to curse the fairy because she didn't get invited to the party so that was all pretty um true to how the original story went um and it's actually they got the name aurora because um the prince and the princess have two children. They have a girl named Aurora and a son called Day, who actually says that he was named Day because he was still more beautiful than his sister. So <laughs> even the boys, the boys were just better in the story. Um, but yeah, they were very passive. And I'm so glad that they made the character Maleficent um, because there is a, um, I don't know if you guys have seen the Maleficent movie that came out a few years ago with Angelina Jolie. So good. I was going to ask. Yeah. So I love this movie because it's really taking this old story that really is not relatable to modern women and twisting it and completely taking the prince out of the equation. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really like to see these stories changed into more modern stories, either through books or films and just, um, put a more modern lens onto them so that they are relatable so that the terrible mother doesn't have to be a terrible mother. She can be a supportive mother instead Mm -hmm. and they can, they can transform together. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting, like, when you were, Julia, we, I was thinking about this as you were talking, it's, like, one of the things that everybody talks about with Sleeping Beauty is, again, the issue of, like, consent, this prince, like, giving her this kiss, and one, and it's so, 
interestingly portrayed the issue of consent with the Maleficent uh, retellings in the mm-hmm. movies, which I thought was just a really beautiful way to show the, the the issues that they were grappling with, but from a very from a um, a very dynamically different character. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I I love all of those observations, and I I think Julia, what you're what you're seeing in the original telling is as being passive again is that that shift from the story being about a woman being transformed to a story about the hero conquering the villain so it it becomes you know like in the in the original telling the uh the character who is maleficent disappears after she casts the spell that is is going to you know fulfill itself when uh when the princess becomes a certain age and the thing that I thought was interesting um, about that was that it 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 becomes about good versus evil instead of about this this woman's journey. Like she when she falls asleep, she just falls asleep. There's nothing really happening, you know. Um, the the passiveness of of the everything kind of moving away for the the prince again is like like in Snow White. Like it's because she's ready for him. You know, like he doesn't have to do any work because it's the right time for her. And and the the book actually asks the question, is it because it's the right time or the right person? And she doesn't really answer that. She leaves it pretty open ended because I think I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think you're you're ready for the right person when you're ready. But if you meet even if it's the right person and you meet them at the wrong time, it's it may not end well. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought that was really, really interesting. And to circle back on Cinderella just for a second, I just had to say that I've been a Little Mermaid, like that's my favorite Disney movie, you know, forever. Um, but now it's Cinderella because it's very, like you said, Caitlin, it's the one of the three that we, we've looked at that is the most true to the original story. Um, and it's a story that I, I think the the heroine has a lot more agency in what's going on. Um, she's she's consciously awake for all of it. And while she is, you know, coming to into her own in a different way, it's, um, you know, it's much more it's much more a, a story of her transformation than it is about the the hero coming in and saving the day because he doesn't show up until the ball. And he has maybe like two lines in the whole movie. It's it's very much about her. Um, and I, I was kind of thinking about this and, and had kind of a bonus question for the group regarding Walt Disney and, and maybe some of these choices that he made to change um, some of these stories to be to have more of a hero's bent. Do you think that had more to do with his interpretation of the story or do you think he was trying to make it more marketable to both sexes? You are asking something really similar to some something I was thinking because I was just thinking about how all three of these retellings in the Walt Disney um, filmography have taken stories of transformation and turned it into just a very good versus evil they, they've taken an inner an inner process and transformed it into an outer process it's just a it's a struggle even in Cinderella which I think is the least um good versus evil mm-hmm. um but still i think the stepmother and the stepsisters are, are supposed to symbolize that I, I think probably i 
I never thought about it in appealing to men and women in that way, but I think, yes, I think that that probably is why they, they did, they, they reimagined it. They made the focus more external versus internal. And I think they still do that now. I, I remember reading that when they did Tangled, they revamped they, the entire story of Cinderella and retitled it and brought in Flynn Rider and they made it much more because they thought if we just tell the story of Cinderella, it's only going to appeal to girls and we're not going to get the boys. I mean, even to the point- You mean Rapunzel, they, right? I'm sorry. Yes, sorry. <laughs> oh, thank you. But it's yeah, okay. they, they, they completely like, you know, they thought, well, well if we do this, we're not going to, we're going to lose out on half of our, our market for kids. And it's like they, to the point where they just like flat out, like took the name out of it, the very famous name and made it Tangled. Like I just, and it's, it's, I love Tangled. I have thoughts. I have thoughts on that. But anyways, it's, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of the same thing that they've done here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you, you, you came upon another really good point of, you know, not, maybe it's not, it's also about, it could be about marketing to a wider demographic, but also about, you know, that external process is a lot more cinematic than an internal process. Like there, it's more visually exciting. You can create more adventure around it as opposed to just, oh, this person's sleeping and they're processing. And that's what's happening. Like that's not super exciting to watch, <laughs> even even though like you can you can tell that story and you can read that story and it can be more interesting and you can kind of create that story in your mind. But to put that on a screen, is is not a very visually interesting story. So maybe it's maybe it's both. It could well, also be. Um, sorry, you can go, Caitlin. I'll remember what I was going to say. Um, well, and I think that's the beauty of that movie Inside Out, where like they had to take all those internal oh, yeah. processes and oh, make them into their own separate character to show the evolution of how everyone processes their emotions. And that's the beauty of that movie is them being able to finally show that. Totally mm-hmm. agree. Oh, I just got chills. Yeah, I love that. Caitlin, mic drop. I uh, what I was going to say is, um, I think, especially at the time when Walt Disney was making these movies, a, a major pull for people to go to the movies was just escapism, right? That was the main reason they went. So I feel like the good versus evil um, was a little bit easier for people to to watch and escape from their own lives rather than maybe watching a transformation might have been a little bit too relatable. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah. It does. I think that's a really interesting kind of, it ties into like what's happening in society at the time, which is like, that's basically what fairy tales are. There's like a reflection of, you know, the people telling them. So, I mean, you're, you're totally right. It's not, it's not that, it's not that it's a, any less valid of a version of a, a story, although I think it's a little bit simpler of a story than, than mm-hmm. the originals, but it's like Walt Disney's just reacting to you know, the events of the the first half of the 20th century in a lot of ways and, and mm-hmm. the way that society grapples with that and, and like needs a break from that and sometimes in some ways. Yeah, I I agree with that. I was um, thinking too, I think Katie said that um, these stories were originally created and told orally over the years as like cautionary tales. And I think in order for them to keep existing, they need to be changed and modernized and um, so that they're relatable to people in all of time forever and ever. 
So Absolutely. I am here for the retellings and the forever reboots. reboots and if if they're doing it in a way that empowers anybody, I am wholeheartedly down for it. Yeah, I think it's exciting to see how these stories are becoming more and more balanced, you know, as far as whether it's a um, a heroine's transformation or a hero's journey and, and the, the different uh, takes on it that are that are bringing those two ideas together and, and letting both exist in the same space, I think is is a really neat idea. I think it's really interesting that that a lot of the hero's journeys that we see now from Disney and, and Pixar do involve um, women now, like, or girls, like Moana is very much a hero's journey, or, um, you know, Encanto talking about, you know, like, unpacking, you know, a family's dysfunction and, 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 and helping everybody become much more healing, um, or, you know, even like the, the uh, hero's journey vacation of, of, um, of Rapunzel, but I think it would be really interesting, and I don't know how anyone would do this. Why, why is it that you can't flip the script and you can't have a male-centered movie where there is a lot of reflection and internal processing? Yeah. I, I would pay to see that. Same. I don't know what that looks like. I just think it's really interesting that we've we've as a as a culture and as a movie going audience have recognized that women can occupy the same space as men in terms of that hero's journey, but we haven't turned it around and said men Mm -hmm. can occupy that same transformative space as women. Totally agree. I think I think you uh, are on the way to your first screenplay. Courtney, I think you've got your your idea. There we go. Put that one on my to-do list. <laughs> awesome. This has been, uh, I've been really excited for this conversation and I don't want to um, quell any last thoughts that are out there. So let me, let me just check and see if there's any other burning ideas and uh, observations or opinions that anyone wants to share. I just I just want to say that uh, Courtney, thank you so much for um, bringing this, recommending this book for us. I know we it, we kind of had a, a love hate with an emphasis on the hate for some <laughs> some parts of it, but I think this has been a really um, interesting conversation, and there was a whole lot of stuff in this book for us to to think about and reflect on. So thank you for recommending it. Yes, thank, thank you. you for. Thank you for bearing me as I rediscovered how some parts have not aged well. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. That just means we've grown. So that's good. You're right. Oh, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this conversation was one that I was really excited to have, and it definitely did not disappoint. It exceeded my expectations. And I want to thank our guests for for joining us, for taking some time to both prepare for this, because that was a lot of work, and then mm-hmm. spend the time to to discuss it. It's been really fun, and I've learned a lot from each of you in, in hearing your perspectives on this book. So I want to thank everyone. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you for bringing us on. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an honor. all right should we we'll we'll do the send out until next time let's read share and repeat Bye. bye goodbye
Bye. That brings us to a close on this chapter of Sibling Library. Thank you for listening. Until next time, let's read, share, and repeat. <laughs>